Welcome to Claim Your Confidence, a podcast that will introduce you to the most powerful people in the world. No matter what obstacles you face, Claim Your Confidence will inspire and motivate you to go after the life you want. Are you ready to claim your confidence? Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Claim Your Confidence. I'm Lydia Finette podcasting out of Newsstand Studios in Rockefeller Center, and I am so excited to be back with you today. So I have been a voracious reader since I was a child, and if you are anything like me, if you are a book reader or someone who loves books, I cannot pass a table at a bookstore or even the front window, frankly, of a bookstore without running in there to see which novels are coming up next. And as long as I can remember, there has been one name that has always been on that table. And I cannot tell you how excited I am that she has chosen to spend her afternoon with me. So Ellen Hildebrand, thank you so much for being here. Oh, Lydia, thank you for having me. I've been looking forward to this. And it makes no difference when I say this because it is February in New York City, but I can't wait for summer and you are the queen <laughs> of the beach read. So you are giving me hope. I hate winter so much. And so I'm so excited to be thinking about all things sunny and warm in Nantucket with you today. So exactly, we're going to have a ball. So as I've told you before, this entire conversation is about confidence. And I have so many questions for you as a fellow author, but I think what everybody needs to understand is that you have written 28 books since 2000. Is that correct? Yes. That is a lot of books. I think it's my 30th. Well, I've written 30. 29 are out at the time of this airing. Unbelievable. 30 books. I'm going to dive right in. So all of these books are based in and around Nantucket, but that is not where you grew up. So tell us about Ellen as a child. Who were you? That is correct. So the origin story for this particular, for my career anyway, starts when I'm 10 years old, And I grew up in a blended family. So my father is remarried and he and my stepmother take their brood of five um, to Cape Cod every summer. And we go for the month of July. We rent a cottage on a sandy lane that leads to the beach. The cottage is nothing fancy. It has a screened in porch sort of sagging off the side. It has floorboards with sand between them. It has furniture that looks and smells like it's been sat on but in wet bathing suits for 50 years. So it is not (laughs) fancy. And we have all of these um, rules when we're on the Cape. Like we are not allowed to shower inside. We have to use the outdoor shower. We're not allowed to eat inside. We take breakfast, lunch, and dinner um, on the back patio at the picnic table. Um, If it's sunny, it's a beach day. And we go down at nine o'clock in the morning. We wrap, the five of us wrap our towels around our necks. We trudge down the sandy lane where we proceed to stay for like eight hours. And we come home glowing at the end of the day. My grandmother would say, you know, you all look so healthy. <laughs> and then we would go down and watch the sunset. Like it was a Broadway show. We'd get there, get our seats early. We'd watch the sun go down. We'd clap. And for dinner, we'd grill out back or we'd go and get fried clams and self-serve ice cream and play miniature golf. And these were super idyllic times. My dad used to wake us up twice in the middle of the night. The first time he'd wake us up, we'd go to the beach in our pajamas and look at the stars. And then the second time he'd wake us up, he would light the candles in the dining room and we would play Midnight Uno. Oh my gosh. It was this fabulous. magic. And then what happened was the summer after my 16th birthday, my birthday is in July, which probably comes as no surprise. The November after my 16th birthday, my father was killed in a plane crash. And 
this is sort of the moment that like divides my life in half. So it was like super duper happy idyllic childhood. And then he dies in the plane crash and everything changes. And my 17th summer, I have to get a job and I get a job working in a factory that makes Halloween costumes. So it's 1986 and I'm working five days a week, eight hours a day, folding Rambo headbands and like stapling clown hats to cardboard forms. And I'm doing this and I'm bemoaning my reversal of fortune. And I say to myself, Lydia, I say, I don't care what happens in my life. I am going to find a way to get those summers back. I have full body chills hearing that. I I really like I feel like we were on a high and this has been a real roller coaster in the first three like, minutes. Oh, no, no yeah. but I mean, first and foremost, I would love to know because you do have such a separation between that sort of before and after, who were you before that? Were you a happy-go-lucky child? Were you the, the child of eternal summer? Were you a confident child? What were you like before the accident? I feel like I was a nerdy child. I mean, I my personality didn't really change. I'm the oldest and I'm a twin, but I'm older than my twin brother and was sort of the dominant twin. And, you know, very smart in school, very high achieving students, loved to write from an early, early age. When I was in second grade, my teacher gave everybody an award at the end of the school year, and I got the top author award. And I can remember, the vividly remember them saying, top author, Ellen Hildebrand. And I stood up, I'm seven. And I thought, yes, I am an author. I just, I knew it. And uh, went and got my award and kept it. And was so proud of it because, because I, but it felt right. Like to me, that felt right. You know, I didn't have to be the smartest kid in the class and, or the most athletic or anything, but I was an author and I was identified as such a seven, which just cracks me up in retrospect, but also gives me an enormous respect for my teachers because they noticed, I don't think, I don't think I was super talented at seven, but they noticed that I enjoyed it. And then they, they, they really sent me on my path, I think. But it also says so much about you that when they said top author, you thought, yes, (laughs) like that, that should tell you something about yourself. Like, I mean, I feel like I know that person because I am kind of that person. And someone's like, you got, I'm like, yes. And not everybody feels that way or that, you know, a lot of, especially young girls or not even young girls, but probably as they get older would be like, no, no, not me. Like, that's not me. And you claim that mantle. So author was there from early days. Yep. For that reason, I was like, this feels correct. I knew I, if, I, if somebody else had gotten it, I would have been violently jealous. And I probably wouldn't <laughs> even have realized it. But I mean, then I would have been like, wait, I that's my thing. Yeah. It had always been my thing to write stories. And did you read as well? Or was it always just oh, writing? Oh, God, God yes. yes. Yeah. Oh, yes. Same time frame, second, third grade. I go to my librarian at Arrowhead Elementary School, Mrs. Hirsch. Hello, Mrs. Hirsch, if you're listening. And said, I have read every book in the library which was not true, Lydia, but what, that's what I told her. I have, I had every read every book of interest to me in the library. Like those little biographies. Remember those biographies that we would get in elementary school and it would be like Louisa May Alcott, yes. <laughs> Pocahontas, yeah. whatever, John Jacob Astor. And so she bought, the following year, she called me into the library day, day one of school. I'm in third grade. She said, "I look what I have. And she'd bought the entire Nancy Drew catalog. And I was thrilled and I mowed through them. I was constantly reading. Always loved it. That's so funny that you talk about the Nancy Drew. I think Nancy Drew was the reason my parents invested in a library card because I started going through them so quickly that I think yeah. at some point they were like, okay, we're actually spending more money on the, your book reading than any other part of your life. And so they're like, this right. is a library where you can right. read them and give them back and we don't have to buy them and we're running out of bookshelf space. Precisely. I just, my oldest daughter just read her first Nancy Drew and I was like, 
here you go. Like these are the I keys know. to the kingdom. Do you think she finds it relevant? I'm so curious. She like, loved oh, it. She did, ripped did through she them. Yeah. She read them both so quickly. And that's the thing about books. I mean, that's the beauty of a book and you write them. So you know this, but like they're timeless. You can pick up a Nancy Drew book and the themes and the stories, no matter what age you are, are still there. And it is still a mystery. And it does still give you that like, I'm in this story and I'm reading it and I can't get out. Right. So following the accident then, were you able to keep that sort of joyousness to yourself or did that all diminish for a while? I will say that internally, I think I was pretty lost. My father died at a time in my life where I had just gotten my driver's license. I had just gotten my first job. I worked at Gimbel's for all my Philadelphia people out there. I, I <laughs> had worked at Gimbel's. I had my first boyfriend. I mean, all these things were happening and he died at, at, right at that time. And so I was trying to then navigate all this other stuff while dealing with my grief. But that said, and I, when I look back, I'm very proud of myself. And I felt this way at different junctures in my life. When I look back, I thought, how did I do it? But I, you know, my grades didn't slip. I was very high achieving. I just kept outwardly, you know, my achievement level was unchanged. Yeah. And really with an eye towards going to college and moving on and everything turned out fine. And I will say that was true for all five of my siblings. And I'm so proud of us none of us fell off the rails. It was a devastating, like crushing blow, but we all graduated from college. We all got married. We all have children. Like we're all successful people and nobody got permanently derailed, which I, I laud the five of us for. Absolutely. And also to your early parents too, because a lot of yeah. that's built in those really of early course. years, you know, so of you course. get to 16 and you're starting to develop all of those other things, but the solid foundation is clearly what has sort of kept you guys where Absolutely. you are moving forward. And we're all so close too. Like the five of us are so close and we're not all blood related, but we are, you know, we have a tech stream and we're, we get together and we're all so like bonded, which is so great. Such a gift. What a yeah. gift. So you went to John Hopkins, is that correct? Yes. And that was when you really started writing. It is. I was a writing seminars major at Johns Hopkins. So the thing about Johns Hopkins, of course, and a lot of your listeners will know this, it's a scientific institution. <laughs> primarily known for medical school. It has a wonderful medical school undergrad. It's biomedical engineering. It's, it's you know, a lot of people are pre-med. It has wonderful international relations. It also has a dedicated creative writing major called writing seminars. And I was in that major. One of my classes at Hopkins was like every semester was a creative writing workshop. And there was a bell tower room at Hopkins and we would hold the workshops in the bell tower room and it looked over campus and it had stained glass. I mean, it was gorgeous. I joke and say that my job then at Hopkins became saving the seat at the bar because I was always finished studying first. Um, <laughs> I just, my classes weren't quite as rigorous or they were yeah. <laughs> easy. They were easier for me because I loved writing. And so it was, it was fun, but I got a really good education reading wise, as well as writing and being in workshops from the time, you know, I had for sophomore, junior, senior year. And I had these amazing professors. John Barth is my professor, Madison Bell. You know, we had these incredible teachers and it really set me on my way. When you left there, was the idea to go to a magazine? I mean, what were you going to do with your writing major? Was it always to be an author? So I went to Madison Smart Bell at the end of my senior year and I said to him, you know, I want to be a writer. What do I do? Like, do I go to graduate school? Do I get a job? And he said, 
words that I have lived by. He said, you have to go out in the world and live, Ellen. Doesn't matter. You have to go out and live. And he goes, otherwise you'll have nothing to write about. You know, I'm 22 years old. And so I did that for a while. I moved to New York. I worked in publishing initially and realized I was on the wrong end of the stick. Quit that, figured that what I really needed was time. And so I got a job teaching in the New York City public schools at IS-227 in Queens. And you're a New Yorker. So I lived on the Upper East Side, 82nd between Lex and 3rd. It was three subways to get to IS-227. And then I took a bus to go out to Queens College because I wasn't actually technically certified to teach. So I had to take classes at Queens College, even though I have a, had a John Sopkins degree. So it was this whole year of like getting certified to teach and teaching in the New York City public schools. And then I got a second job. I got another job the following year teaching up in Dobbs Ferry. And so I had the summer off between the two school years. And this is when my life really changed. So I had the summer off. I had my teaching job to look forward to. And I thought, I'm doing it. I'm going to go away for the summer. And I didn't want to go to Cape Cod because I, of course, had grown up there. And then I had been to Martha's Vineyard in college. So I thought, I'm going to do the third part point on that particular triangle. And I'm going to go to Nantucket. And it was 1993. So what did I do? I called information (laughs) and I asked for the number of the newspaper. And then I called the newspaper and said, can you please mail me your classified ads? And they sent the classified ads in the mail. Six days later, they came. And I started calling and get. I got a room in a house, a share house, and went to Nantucket for the summer and fell so in love with the island, so in love with it, that basically I went back and I taught up in Tom's Ferry the second year. And then after that school year, I moved to Nantucket permanently. And I've did been here ever since. Well? That was 1994. I did not teach. No, I was just here to write. And then I did part-time jobs. So I worked at the classifieds at the Inquirer Mirror here on Nantucket. I worked for an attorney part-time. Oh, I substitute taught. So, I mean, I did all these things part-time so that I could work on my writing. Yeah. So, I've been to Nantucket a couple of times over the years, but for those listeners who've never been to Nantucket, tell us a little bit about what you love so much about it or what you loved then. Right. So there's only two ways to get here. You can take the ferry or you can fly. And when I was 22, I was taking the ferry. In fact, at that point, I think I only had like the $17 for the ticket to take the slow ferry. So I think it was two hours and 15 minutes on the boat to get here. And I can remember when the ferry pulled into the harbor and seeing the church steeples and the gray shingled cottages and the bursting flower boxes and the snapping flags and the boats in the harbor. And I just thought, this is my idea of paradise. And I paraphrased John Denver. It was like coming home to a place I'd never been before. I'm like, I love it here. I bought a 10 speed bike. I would ride to the beach. You know, I had two roommates. They were learning Nantucket as well. They are still best, best friends of mine. And we all, you know, we bonded and we just sort of learned the island, like the restaurants downtown. And it was such a transformative summer. I really can't explain it. Nantucket is magical that way. It's so funny. You're like, it's a transformative summer. I can't explain it. And But I've written 30 books about it. So <laughs> actually, maybe, maybe you right. could. Maybe so, I can't explain it. Did you start writing that summer when you got to Nantucket or were you writing before? No. Well, so the answer is yes. I was writing a novel that has never seen the light of day. And this is probably fairly important for your listeners. This novel was called Girl Stuff. It was set in New York. It's gone. It was on a boxy computer that I is long, long, long gone. I don't have any copies of it and it doesn't matter. And you would say, oh, I really want to read Ellen's 
you know, very, very first book. You don't. It was terrible, but I needed to write it to get to my second novel, which ended up being The Beach Club. And there is a step between those two things, which was that when I had been on Nantucket, I met a boy that then became my husband. But at the time, he was just my boyfriend. He's now my ex-husband, and we're very, very good friends. He will not mind me disclosing any of this this (laughs) history. This is not breaking news, unfortunately. Yeah, not breaking news at all. So he was my boyfriend, and he worked seasonally. And so then I started living seasonally, too. So we would go in the winters, and we would travel. We backpacked. And the first year, we went all through Southeast Asia and Australia, New Zealand, Fiji. We came home. We got married. Then the second year, we went to South America, and we went to Chile and Argentina and Brazil and Ecuador. We went to the Galapagos, and then we did six weeks in Costa Rica. And then we came home. And at that point, feeling like I had sufficiently gone out and lived, I applied to graduate school. And I applied to two graduate schools, the best two that I perceived, which was the University of Iowa Writers Workshop and the University of Michigan. And I got into both and decided to go to Iowa. So in the fall of 1996, I get in this car that Chip and I had bought and off I go to Iowa. And I'm miserable. I'm miserable in Iowa. It is nothing like Nantucket. Just even that sentence is just so silly. It was cornfields and pig farms and Big Ten football. And there was not a decent restaurant as far as I was concerned. Like there was no, there was window boxes with shingles. Yeah, there's a water. None of that was happening. Yeah, I was, you know, I was absolutely miserable. And uh, the university had free therapy. So I used to go every, (laughs) every week to the therapist and cry. And at some point she said to me, I think it's fairly obvious what you must do. And for a second, Lydia, I thought she was going to tell me that I should quit and go home. And I thought, do therapists advise that kind of thing? She said, you need to start writing about Nantucket. And so that is what I did. Oh, I definitely thought she was going to tell you to go home. I thought she was going to be like, you need to go home. Okay, so that's what, I guess that's why I'm not a therapist. So she said, start writing about Nantucket. Nantucket. That makes so much sense. I know. It makes so much sense. So I started writing my novel, The Beach Club. And... Uh, and then in my very last workshop, my second year, I was ready to graduate. My very last class, I went in and my professor had his agent from New York there. And the agent said, which one of you lives on Nantucket? It was very obvious. It was me. I was in a sarong. <laughs> you know, you like, can... I was wearing a bow in my hair. <laughs> exactly. I, it was very obvious. It was me. And I raised my hand and he said, oh, please, would you please stay and talk to me after class? And I did not want to stay and talk to him after class because I wanted my U-Haul was packed. I wanted to go. But thank God I did because he has been my agent for the last 26 years. Stop it. That's yes. unbelievable. So Michael he just Carlyle. knew. He knew it. You know, I always say that agent agent author relationships are like marriages half of them end in divorce and half of them are like michael and i and we just will be together forever and there's no breaking us apart and nothing anything that could happen would ever separate us and it has been really wonderful having him what did michael see in that first novel what did he see the reason he asked the question is because he had grown up at 75 main street which is very fancy and I, I knew that. He's part of the Coffin family, a distaff line of the Coffin family. So he had... 75 Main Street in Nantucket, you're saying? Yes, Main Street in Nantucket. He had this long family history in Nantucket and had grown up there summers. And so he had a connection. And then when I told him that my novel was set on Nantucket, he was, you know, so sold. And then he read it. And, you know, we did a little bit of cutting, a lot of cutting. But 
and he was like, I'm going to sell this and I'm going to make you lots and lots of money. And I, who doesn't want to hear that? I was so, I was thrilled. <laughs> You're like, no, um, no, no, no. <laughs> right. And he didn't, I mean, he, our first offer was $5,000 for the book. And I said, are, are we going to take that? And he said, well, I don't, you know, he'd sent it to every publisher in New York. And that was what we ended up with was this $5,000 offer. So he said, yeah, we're going to take it. And we did. And the second week it was out, it was People Magazine's Beach Book of the Week. And I was so excited. I was jumping up and down. My publisher had only published 2,500 copies. Now this is, this is 2000. So it's before the Kindle, before the NUC, before the iPhone. And basically they ran out of books. There's no other way to get go, it if you don't have a hard copy. Right. Had yeah. to go back to press, took three weeks in the middle of the summer. So it was, it was a frustrating first go, but I ended up selling a fair number of copies and the fact that they sold out like the publisher was excited. So then I got a two book deal. I did not hit it big until my sixth novel. My first five novels were with one publishing house and they didn't really believe in me and they didn't really back me. For example, when I went on tour with my first five books, they didn't pay for it. So I had to pay for everything myself. And I had tiny children. I had a baby I was nursing and then that baby became a toddler. And then I had another baby I was nursing. And so in these summers, when I was like going out and doing events, I had to get a babysitter for my toddler. I'd take my second younger son with me um, in the bucket thing, in the bucket seat and my pump, my breast pump. I mean, it was crazy. And I'd have to rent a car and, and then I'd go and three people would show up and I'd be like, this is just not what I want. And this went on for, you know, five books. There's so many things I want to dig into here as an author of two books. Like we're going to need another episode to just cover what you talked about. But I want to say this because, you know, I told you this at the beginning when I was writing my first book, it was almost like I was following breadcrumbs. I had no idea what I was doing. I sold my first book based on one chapter and a proposal because I told the New York Times I was writing a book called The Most Powerful Woman in the Room is You. And the article came out two weeks after the Harvey Weinstein article hit. So okay. it was like everyone wanted this book and I sold it. Right. And a preempt to Simon & Schuster, which if you don't know what that okay. is, it basically just means someone comes in. I'm telling yeah. this for my listeners, but okay, right. someone comes in and will pay you more than anyone else just to sort of like knock your book off the table and nobody will take it. And... That was all great, and it was so fun and and so exciting. But then you write the book, and if you are not an Ellen Hildebrand or you are not, you know, Oprah, you are literally selling your book book by book. And I know you will agree, because what you just said about your first six books, but people say to me all the time, they're like, wow, you really do a lot of events for your books. I'm like, I'm not John Grisham. And if I want someone to buy my book, they have to understand that I'm the person writing it and they have to trust me. So they have to see me and they have to hear me speak. And it is an incredibly long and arduous road to get to a place where you're a bestseller. And so for you, like to hear that you've written six books, I mean, I say to people all the time, like it's a numbers game. The more you put out, the more events and book talks and stuff like that you do, the more people will read and come to you for advice or whatever you're writing about. But it's a long struggle. And I started my second book talking about going to a book event where I showed up and there was one person for a 50-person moderated talk. (laughs) It was me and the other guy who was moderating the talk for one person. It's just so mortifying. And I've done it even, I mean, honestly, I can't tell you how many times over the years, so I've been doing this now 24 years. How many times has this happened? Even I'm trying to think, I think back in the fall of 19, I did an event at Books and Company or whatever, Books and Books in Miami. No. Yeah. I know and I Miami. walked into Ugh. I walked into the room and I said, I don't think, 
I mean, at that point I had, you know, 25 books. I walked into the room. I said, I don't think this is room is, I don't think this is me. There were like 12 people there. I'm like, yeah. I don't think this is for me. And they're like, no, no, this is for you. And it's like, oh my God. But it's because, you know, downtown metropolitan areas are not my read, like yeah. not necessarily my readers. And I'm not sure how well it was publicized or whatever happened. Yeah. But even then, like to be, and I, I think later that year or no, possibly earlier that year, I debuted at number one and to then you know, later that year, go into a room and there's only 12 people. I know it's really like this is I think being an author is the biggest confidence test ever because you have to keep putting yourself out there. So first of all, you get all the people who are like, I hate your book. Like if I don't read the negative comments because I don't need them because who wants to see that? But like, let's start there. But then every time you go out, you are always risking the possibility that no one is going to show up. I call my friends like you better be there. I will know. I will know if you're there. (laughs) I know. It's really hard and I've suffered through it. But it, I mean, in talking about confidence, it walks hand in hand with humility. You have to have been through it and know that you can survive it. Yes. And I did an event at the Charleston Library back in 2012. Three people came. Yeah. <laughs> but like one of them came from so far away and got a babysitter for her kids. And so that sticks to me because I'm like, okay, well, it was only three people, but one of those people really wanted to see you, yeah. really wanted to meet me. Yeah. And I think confidence, you know, walks hand in hand with humility, with discipline and with perseverance and just knowing it, you're going to be fine. Yeah. It's you'll survive and you'll yeah. write another book and then maybe more people will come or maybe yeah. you'll like literally pay people to come, which I've thought about too. <laughs> Going back to one thing you just said too about discipline. So I want to talk to you a little bit more about your writing process because obviously you came from structure and working with workshops and had gone through college and going to Iowa to also do the writing classes there. But what do you do? Like, what is your process for writing? I'm fascinated because I watched James Patterson on uh, Masterclass and now yeah. I can't stop thinking about it. So tell me okay. what you do so that we all can replicate your style. I'm probably the opposite of Jim. He's a friend. I don't, I've never asked him how he does it. But my process is, on the one hand, extremely disciplined, and on the other hand, really loosey-goosey. And I want to explain what I mean by that. So first of all, the first thing I do every single day is I exercise. And I am extremely lucky and extremely privileged. And I exercise for like three hours a day. So I do the Peloton, which is here behind me. And then I do like a little jog walk. And then I do my bar class. And that, I do it every single day. And that is the discipline that sets up my day. Because I think exercise for writers is so important. And sometimes I only get one or possibly two of the segments done and that's, and I don't freak out about that. That's fine. But I always exercise right when I wake up and it is not because I want to, it is because it just clears your mind. Right. Totally. There we go. And I've done something difficult first thing in the morning. And then after I do my exercising, I write and in a perfect world, I have six or seven hours like a lot of times in the summer, I have a pool out back. I'll sit by the pool and I'll do my writing and I'll swim and I'll take a nap and I'll eat my lunch and I'll read. And all of those things are part of my work day. If you compose three hours a day and I work almost every single day, you can write two books a year. And so I try to leave myself seven hours to get three hours of composing done, which allows for time to do other things. I have three children. So yeah. And then I will compose three hours a day and it's hard. Composing is hard. You know, it is rubber to the road, but you, I make myself do it the same way I make myself get on the Peloton and it doesn't have to be perfect. You can go back and fix it, but if you don't do it to begin with, you have nothing to fix and the book will not get written. So it's really a matter of, of butt and seat and 
doing the work. And I have just written my last Nantucket summer novel, as you may know. I'm retiring. You've said that. And the reason is because I've run out of material and because also I am so focused on each book being as good as or better than the last one. I'm never going to phone it in. I will never phone it in. I'm always going to make like, this is going to be a great book. And it's gotten so hard. And I was struck because I watched Billy Joel at the Grammys the other night. And he said that he hasn't written a song in 30 years. And you think about all the amazing songs that are part of our cultural identity that he's written. And it never dawned on me that 30 years had passed and he hadn't really written a song. And then he did it again. And I thought, I wonder if that will be me. <laughs> because Possibly. I too feel like I am coming to the end. And something else down the road, yes. But for the Nantucket books, it's just gotten too hard for me to outdo myself. Yeah. I'm a big believer in like, you can always undo what you've said. What, right. You can say things and then you can take them sure. back. And no one remembers at the end of the day, like five right. years of the past, you'd be like, Swan Song too. Everyone's like, I'm dying for part two of Swan right. Song. Of you know? yeah. But I love to hear that about the discipline and about the three hours of composing. How many words does that give you? Because just again, for our listeners, word count is- It doesn't matter. It doesn't so matter. It's just whatever it is. that's the most important thing. And a perfect, I, I handwrite, I do them longhand. So I always sort of use six handwritten pages as like a good day. Okay. But I do not, because you. it is so easy to psych yourself out and be like, oh my God, I only got three pages done or I only got a page and a half done or I got 17 pages done. I can take the next three days off. Doesn't matter. Yeah. You're going to sit and write for three hours and you're going to get what you get. All I can say is, is I have the books to prove it, that it works for yeah. me anyway. And I, I really try not to freak myself out. The things I don't do, Lydia, I don't go to lunch like with other people. Like I'm not spontaneous. You can't call me and say, you want to go grab a coffee? The answer is going to be no. Like every day is planned and scheduled and that's how you get it done. In my retirement, I hope to be able to, you know, go to lunch. Do the, do the ladies coffee. who lunch, but don't yeah. lunch because they've do written something. 20 novels. <laughs> do something crazy because right now, you know, my life is very, yeah, book. very disciplined. But listen, at the end of the day, that's what all this has led to, right? You know, yeah. this is, this is when you get to enjoy the fruits of your labor for a while, at least until the next idea comes. Right. I want to talk about one of your novels in particular that I loved that I read, Golden Girl. And that I think you'd written after a breast cancer diagnosis. Is that correct? Or around that time? Yeah. Well, I wrote it in I wrote it during the pandemic. That has had nothing to do with the novel, but that, so it came out in 2021. I wrote it in 2020. The idea of that novel came from two places. The first we've already talked about, right? Which is the fact that my father died when I was 16 and that I have always felt his hand on my back, which makes sense because you've read the novel. And then the other was that I had breast cancer in 2014 and it was all fine at first. I had a double mastectomy. I was reconstructed. And then at some point during the reconstruction, I got very, very sick. I had MRSA. And which is, for those of you listening, a terrible, awful infectious disease. And it was around the same time that there was the Ebola scare. So my doctors had on the yellow suits whenever they came in to, to talk to me. And I got flown off of Nantucket in a helicopter. And before I got on the helicopter, the nurse said, you should probably say goodbye to your children. So can you imagine? So the kids were, uh, Max was 14 or 15 and Dawson would have been 12 and Shelby would have been eight. And they came into my hospital room and I said to them, you guys, I don't know what's going to happen here, but I can tell you one thing and that is I will never leave you. 
And I wasn't sure what I meant by that. And I don't think they understood what I meant by that. But what I meant by that was the premise of this novel. If I were to die, I'm going to go above and just haunt you like for the rest of your life and move you like chess pieces. Like I cannot, I will not let you grow up by yourself. And that is the premise of this novel. It's, it's honestly such a beautiful novel. And I feel like I read it coming off of a an incident, not dissimilar, but with a car accident where I was in a room with my children and my husband. And I had a, a moment where they kind of said to me, like, listen, we're going to go in internally and just start cutting out your organs because we don't really know what's happening. And I just remember thinking, like, is this it? Like, is this the last? Right this is the last time. Like, I don't know what you're saying to me. Like, I can't even really conceive of it. And then we were recovering from the car accident. And literally six months later, one of my best friends was diagnosed with colorectal and died within a year. Oh my goodness. And those two things, like on their own, I think are both such huge parts of life. And the interesting connective point there was because I'd just been through something so intense and scary and so near death that it made speaking about death very easy with her. And I think a lot of people are scared of that conversation. And I was no longer scared of that conversation in many ways. And I think when I read your book, there were so many things that I saw. And now Marianne has passed, and I still feel like she's around me. And so there was something so comforting about reading that book. And I would encourage anybody who is going through something in their own life or grieving or or having points that are scary— to read it because it is an yeah. uplifting and lovely way to think about really intense and difficult topics. So thank right. you for writing it. And we don't know that I'm wrong either, Lydia. That's the I don't thing think you're wrong. Like, nobody, I think you're right. I like it. I like the whole idea. I'm wrong. I know. Yeah, I, know. I do. I loved it. So I want to ask this for all the budding authors out there. What would you say to someone who wants to be a writer, not someone who does other things and also writes a book, but someone who really wants to be a writer. I understand. Yeah. So the thing I say, so funny, my middle child, Dawson, I was just in Miami a day or two ago with him and I did the whole mom thing, took his friends out for dinner and, you know, we, he and I had some really good quality time. The and cool he mom told thing. me he, he <laughs> wants the whole cool mom thing. And then he told me, he said, I want to be a writer, which is shocking uh, of the three children that I gave birth to, he would be the third that I would ever think would say he wanted to be a writer. But he said, I have a a document and it's filled with ideas. And he was giving me something. I, my mind was blown. And I was like, oh my goodness, Dustin. So we immediately went to the bookstore and I said, you you know, you need to read this book and this book, novels that I thought he would enjoy. And my own, one of my own novels included, I said, read this because it said on Nantucket, you're going to like it. The children, my oldest son just read his first Ellen Hildebrand book a couple weeks ago. My daughter has read four or five of them. She's 18. But the kids historically just haven't been interested. Um, <laughs> like real but children. you have to read. Yeah. So the number one thing is you have to read. You have to read. I read all the time, every single day. I'm I, I'm always in a book with, with my next two books planned. That is the only way I can get better. The only way I can get better is by reading other people. And then the second thing is to go out and live. Exactly what Madison Bell told me when I was in college. You have to have as many experiences as you can. You, Lydia, I'm convinced could write a fantastic novel about being an auctioneer. All of that whole world that you're with, the, not only the lots that you're auctioning, but and the people you're dealing with and the charities and the, but the people who are bidding, I mean, that is a whole universe that could become a novel that I think would be totally fascinating. That is your arena. So I always say to people, you know, go out and do things and live. And then that becomes the arena that then you can write about. 
right? My mom, by the way, has been telling me to write a fiction novel. If my mom will listen to this, because she listens the minute they drop on Tuesday. My mother, for years, is like, just write a fiction. She's like, why do you keep writing nonfiction? You were meant, you live in this like crazy imaginary world anyway. She's like, just write. So I I when she hears this, she's going to be like jumping up and down with joy. And thank you so much for this. I just think it would be so fascinating because it has a lot of the things that people like, even about my own fiction, like it has like the rich people. Yeah, totally. (laughs) Aspiration and wish fulfillment the crazy over the top has, yeah right but it also has the you know the the gravitas of the fact that you're raising money for really important causes and yeah. those causes have a whole other demographic that are you know benefiting from them and so there's like a whole world that you could really build out there i think i'm like meg thompson my literary agent are you listening to this we are I pitching know. you a proposal after this we are pitching it for i mean i just think it would be so fascinating absolutely fascinating. And we'll give it some kind of cute auctiony title. Sold, perhaps. <laughs> Sold. Sold. From and then it'll go to Netflix and then we'll have our show. I mean... And then I'll have it translated into a different language and then I'll get the cover and not realize it's mine, like all yeah. of my books, then yeah. foreign rights languages. Exactly. But that is the thing is you have to have a world that you can draw on. And then the third thing is, of course, just what I talked about, which is you have to make yourself sit down and do it. Yeah. The discipline, a huge yes. part of it. I heard somewhere, and this is kind of where I want to close, you're going to write with your daughter. Is that right? Yes. So has this started? Is this happening? Yes. We're doing it right this second. We're doing it right this second. We have signed a two-book deal to write two novels set at a New England boarding school. Shelby is a senior at St. George's School in Newport, Rhode Island. She got there in the fall of 21 as a sophomore because of the pandemic. She started as a sophomore. And the phone calls started coming and she was having a wonderful time. She was telling me everything that was happening and my mouth dropped. I was like, oh my goodness, we have to write enough. I mean, the (laughs) stuff was so, I'm not going to tell you because I don't want to ruin it. I was like, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? We have to write a novel about a boarding school. And so we've just been collecting material. And if you are at St. George's or you teach there, you don't have to worry because you have to change everything to make it. Yes, of course. Fit in a novel. So we're, we're taking the, I things topics, the lingo for sure. And Gen Z does not have its own boarding school novel the way, you know, Gen X and the millennials do. Like we all, well, we all watched Dead Poet Society right when we were, when we were growing up and we read a separate piece. And, and then the millennials had, of course, Harry Potter, but they also had Curtis Sittenfeld's Prep. So there were a lot, but Gen Z has not yet had its big boarding school book. And so Oh, I'm, I went it. to boarding school, so I cannot wait to read this. So Where I will be did the you first go, person. Lydia? I went to Taft in Connecticut. Yeah. A shout out yeah. to my alma mater, but also because a member of my class is now the head of school, which is horrifying oh, to think that we're okay. that old, but that's exciting. I follow Taft, Hotchkiss, Choate. I follow them all on Instagram so I can sort of, you know, exit our and over like I, so I can see what's going on there and getting fodder um, for your book. <laughs> yes. Constant, constant fodder. I love it. I love it. Well, I will tell you last night. I told my kids, they were all sitting on my bed because I was just telling them that I was interviewing you today. And I was saying, and she's written all these books and she's a mom of three and all of these things. And my daughters, when I, I said, and I was like, and I heard that she's writing a book with her daughter and my kids were like, we want to write a book with you. So we're now writing a book <laughs> called The Most Confident Kid in the Room is You because 
My son wants to be in it too. So they're designing the book cover, which includes a rainbow because all of my books are different colors. So that's as far as we've gotten. But thank you for the inspiration. You it's... are welcome. God, that makes me feel wonderful. That is such a great idea too. What I a know. fantastic idea. <laughs> well, we'll see if any of this gets off the ground. But yeah. I can't thank you enough for your time. I feel like I could talk to you all day. Where can we find you? Swan Song comes out in June. Swan Song comes out June 11th. The Academy will come out, I believe, October 8th. I have a show coming out on Netflix sometime this year. The Perfect Couple was adapted. Stay tuned. My Instagram really is my fourth child. You can follow me on Instagram at Ellen Hildebrand. And I mean, I feel like the books are ubiquitous, but support your independent booksellers. I mean, of course, I'm going to say that. Of course. And the final thing that I'd also heard is that your next step is to become a book influencer. Am I correct? Is that what's next? I have a podcast. Yes, I have a podcast called Book Speech and Beyond with my work husband, Tim Ehrenberg, and we interview all of your favorite authors. So it's not the kind of podcast where you have to read for it because I don't, I'm a slow reader and I don't like having assignments. So these are podcasts. We last season, we had on Colleen Hoover, Taylor Jenkins Reid, Kristen Hanna, Ann Patchett, all the big people. And Susan Two is coming up. Yeah, so if you love to read and you love books and authors, then you can follow Book Speech and Beyond. Oh, I will. I will be following and listening on my next car trip. Well, Ellen, thank you again for coming. And to our listeners, I always like to pose a question to them to think about and then to come back to both of us on social media. And so I would say to all of them, what in your life are you as disciplined about as Ellen is about writing? And if you have a dream or a goal, if you think about applying that kind of discipline, could you achieve it too? think about that. Get back to us. I want to thank everybody who listens every Tuesday when Claim Your Confidence comes out. I want to thank my amazing producer, Joe, obviously Ellen, and Rockefeller Center and Newsstand Studios for hosting me. I'm Lydia Finette. This is Claim Your Confidence. I cannot wait to be back with you again next Tuesday. Thanks for listening. 